You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with another exciting story that we have on this week's show, a few reminders as we get set for the holidays. Make sure you guys check out our website, hazardground.com. Don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. If you're going to do that online shopping thing, and with COVID going on, we know a lot of people will, and you're going to use Amazon, go to our website first, hazardground.com, click on that Amazon button. We'll get a portion of everything you guys spend and we'll donate it right back to some of the great charities you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. So you can help out veterans all across America just by going to hazardground.com and clicking on that Amazon button if that's how you're going to do your holiday shopping. Uh, Apple Podcasts, guys, let's get to 1,000 reviews. And we're only currently at 300. Why do we keep pumping these things? Because, well, if we can do that, we can get into the top 100 Apple Podcasts. They, for some reason, they do it based off of the reviews. And as many people as we have listening to this show, the fact that we only have 300 reviews is sort of depressing. So as a holiday gift to myself and to Matt and everybody a part of the Hazard Ground community, get on Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and a review. Let's get to 1,000. Speaking of numbers, uh, YouTube channel subscriptions, they are up. They're continuing to go up. We want to get to 2,000. We are almost there. Just a few more of you should push it over the line. So if you're a follower of this show, go to our YouTube channel, subscribe to the Hazard Ground page, and help us continue to grow that way. With that said, holiday season upon us. Hope everybody's doing well. Hope everybody is healthy, happy, and safe. And certainly, we appreciate you guys always being part of the Hazard Ground community. Now let's get on to this week's episode. Joining us this week on the Hazard Ground Podcast is a retired Army colonel who spent over 26 years in the U.S. Army, including being an aviator, where he flew missions into West Germany and in Grenada during Operation Urgent Fury. He has a Bronze Star and a Purple Heart. He now is the president and CEO of a nonprofit organization called Veterans Moving Forward, which places service dogs with veterans. He is Gordon Sumner joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Gordon, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Hey, thanks a lot, Mark. It's great to be here with you. All right. Another one of our Grenada vets, which we're always interested in hearing about, because again, uh, you know, before we started recording, you and I were chatting a little bit about that, and it's one of those stories where we don't hear enough about it because, well, again, history is written by the winners, and, and there wasn't really much uh, for us to really look poorly upon those operations. So I'm excited to hear about that. But the beginning of your military career is also very interesting because of how you ended up in Army aviation. Uh, and so why don't you tell us the beginning of that and how and why you got into the military? Well, Vietnam was still going on when I was um, about to enter college and the draft was still happening. So we, I thought, well, what can I do? Uh, what happens if I were to get drafted? Those kind of questions that a young 17-year-old answers themselves. And lo and behold, uh, about a year later, my draft number was 44. And in a small Alabama county, it doesn't take much to get to number 44. So I went ahead and signed up to the Army Reserve, got into the simultaneous membership program, uh, joined the ROTC department there at the university, and thought if I got to go, I'll go on my my uh, thoughts and desires, which was primarily to go as an officer if I could do that. And so that's how I got in originally as an enlisted guy in the Army Reserve. So I um, received a commission, uh, went infantry. Even though I was a piano major in college, I wanted to really see what the Army was like. And coming from a military family where my 
my direct descendants have been in the military and in every major conflict since the Revolutionary War. Wow. I thought, um, and, and we've also had a direct descendant in uniform continuously since 1939 with oh. my Uncle Edmund, who just turned 100 years old last weekend, uh, World War II Korea uh, veteran. And that continues to this day, by the way, um, with my daughter, who's still serving in the Air Force on active duty. She's currently in, a in Africa right now. Hopefully we'll be home in about another month. So anyway, we've got a great uh, history in the Summer family of serving our country. So I just figured it was my, my part to do, uh, to do my time for God and country. I was able to, to get a commission and went on active duty uh, as an officer, still Army Reservist, but I was able to get active duty and did that for about three years, served in the 1st Ranger Battalion and also in the 2nd of the 34th Infantry there at Fort Stewart, Georgia. And in 78, I thought, uh, do I really want to be an infantryman uh, when I'm about 45 years old, still jumping out of airplanes and eating sea rations and that kind of stuff? I thought, no, I think I'll go to graduate school. Submitted my paperwork to resign my commission. And just so happened that weekend, my assignments officer had got promoted to major and had come to his office that weekend to clean his desk out and saw my packet where I was resigning my commission and called me at my quarters at Fort Stewart, Georgia at 6.30 in the morning on a Saturday, yelling in the phone, what the hell are you doing, Lieutenant? And I was like, hello? And he goes, what the hell are you doing? I was like, what? Is this Captain Duckworth? He said, Major Duckworth to you. I was like, oh yeah, that's right, congratulations. But why are you calling me? He said, I'm in here saving your career. And I said, all right, how are you gonna do that? He said, well, you wanna go to flight school? I said, well, I do, but we kicked all the pilots out after the war. And he said, yeah, we screwed that up, kicked out too many. So if you want to go to flight school, your class starts in 30 days. So just, and as I tell people, I'm the poster child for God uh, works in strange and mysterious ways. So just so happened that the guy who had been my executive officer in the infantry battalion was also an Army aviator and had just left to take over his aviation committee at Hunter Army Airfield. So I called him up and said, you're not gonna believe this, but, and he said, you come over to my office, I'll take care of notifying the, the uh, command and I'll get it set up so you can get your flight test done and get your physical done. We'll get all that paperwork turned in so you can make the gate and be there at Fort Rucker in 30 days. So he had it all set up. I don't know how he did it over the weekend, but he did. And so I passed my fast test, passed the physical and everything. And, Sure enough, to the day of that phone call, 30 days later, I was starting my junior bird band flight training there at Fort Rucker, Alabama. And as they say, the rest is history. Wow. So uh, with this change, um, you know, was there any conflict? I mean, were you being pulled to the outside world ever? I mean, I know you said you thought you were just going to go to uh, graduate school, uh, but was that an easy decision? Oh, actually, it wasn't really a hard decision at all, considering that, um, you know, they were going to allow me to, to go to flight school, something I wanted to do. My dad had been an aviator. Uh, my uncle, Edmund, who is uh, my true Marine hero, World War II, uh, Korean War pilot, flew with Pappy Boyington. In fact, on Uncle Edmund's 24th birthday in the Pacific Theater, he had a, a combat mission flown with uh, his wingman who was none other than Charles Lindbergh. So, <laughs> so 
you know, I, I, I grew up around these stories and I thought if I ever had a chance to fly, that would be great. And here the Army is saying, we're going to train you, we're going to give you an aircraft, we're going to pay, pay you to fly it. What do you think? So it was really a no-brainer because I could go to grad school later and uh, sign right up. That's amazing. All right. So uh, how long does it take you to get through flight school and what's next after Fort Rucker? Well, um, like I said, 30 days from that phone call, I checked out, uh, departed Fort Stewart, Georgia. The wife and I got uh, got married a couple of years before. And so we slid into quarters there at Fort Rucker and I started flight training that weekend. And it takes about a year to get through Army Rotary Wing, initial Rotary Wing training. So um, uh, right after that, I was assigned to 2nd Armored Division forward. So we went from Fort Hood, Texas to Germany. I was in uh, Grafenbeer. Then we moved the unit from there up to the very northern section of Germany. We were the first Americans to be put up there with a new concept of putting a heavy brigade forward as part of the, the Americans' defense alliance with NATO. So we had the northern sector, which was great for me because we were the only Americans up there. And if we had to go anywhere, that meant a lot of flight time. So. To kind of give you an idea, to go from junior aviator, junior birdman, to senior aviator, where you put the, just the star over your, your wings, the Army gives you seven years to get 1,500 hours. And I was flying so much that in two years, I had over 1,200 hours. So I was doing a lot of flying for a commission, commissioned officer. And um, it wasn't long after I got my senior rating and then Another within another fifteen years, I had my master aviation rating. All right, it was a lot of fun. It's incredible to see, you know, how fortuitous you were, I guess, and how much, you know. Uh, I always tell everybody the Army has a funny way of putting you where you're supposed to be, you know, and you ended up uh, being able to do exactly what you wanted to do for as long as you wanted to do it. Um, but so let's talk about sort of the time and and the mission in Germany. Because it's a very interesting time. I guess we're not really at the height of the Cold War per se, but we're right in the thick of the middle of it, you know. And so, what was it like being in Germany in that time? Well, we um, we had some scary moments. I mean, things were happening when I was over there. Um, we had the, the uh, Red Brigade was turning up trouble. We had the Batter Meinhof gang that was turning up trouble. Uh, General Crozen and his wife, General Crozen at the time, this was in the 1980-81 time frame. Uh, he was the commanding general of Europe, and he and his wife were in a motorcade, and uh, they had an attempted assassination on his motorcade. Um, so, I mean, things things were going on, so we had to be very careful. When we would deploy, we had to keep our eyes open. We had um, saboteurs that tried to blow up some of our equipment. Uh, we just we just had to be on our, our as they say, the P's and Q's, because while it wasn't a declared combat zone, there were people out there who wanted to, to wreak havoc against the American forces, as well as our allied forces in Europe at the time. So so we really had to be be careful in how we operated. What was it like, you know, as far as you talk about the close calls, but the day to day op tempo and the tension you know, because it's not like regular combat, and I'm not, by all means, I'm not downgrading it. You know, and saying it wasn't difficult or important, but you know, there, there's a sense of, you know, live bullets flying every day, and there's then there's a different environment with which you guys were in, where one shot could change the course of history, right? Well, that yes, and you're absolutely right, Mark. The 
The op tempo was still high. I mean, we had missions. We had a lot of, at least in the units that I was flying in during my, I had three tours in, in Germany, uh, two American and one British Army Air Corps tour. And so all of those between 1978 and when I left in 1990, um, Everything had its own sense of purpose. It had its own set of missions and goals. But the one thing that you had to, to be aware of, and we constantly talked about it, was how there were outside forces still trying to infiltrate, still trying to wreak havoc as best they could. That lone, might have been just a lone wolf out there who wanted to make, make a name for themselves, put them on the you know, front page of Stars and Stripes for doing something. You just said no. So you were always on your alert. You're always vigilant, and you just uh, took precautions and maintained the safety factors. And that's why when you were doing pre-flights of your helicopters and even post-flights when you land, you always made sure that that and your vehicles were, were checked doubly uh, carefully. So when all this goes on day to day, you know what's what's the mental and emotional state of you like? I mean, are, are you? Does it become routine? Because you know how in in we talk about this a lot in regular combat, like. You know, every day you you have your senses heightened. Every day, you know, you, you you go out there and you almost never let your guard down. Was it easy for you guys to let your guard down? Yes. Um, in fact, even in combat tours, and, and you, you can probably relate to this as well, you had to be very careful with your soldiers and especially your non-commissioned officers to maintain a sense of, of awareness without being, I don't want to say complacent, but you can get into what I call Groundhog Day Syndrome where every day is just another day. Every day is pretty much the same as it was yesterday. But you have to instill in your soldiers and, and your, your command that every day is not the same. It is a new day. The sun has come up. There are going to be new challenges today. And we need to stay vigilant and aware of what, what may or may not happen. And don't get sucked into, what, as I mentioned, the groundhog syndrome, where now it's just another day wherever we are. We'll take care of it. So that's, that's where you keep the safety factor going. All right. How long are you in Germany for and when do you leave? Uh, I was there a total of nine years. I uh, From when to when? There, well, I was there from 78 to 82. Okay. And then from 82, I came back to the States, served with the 82nd Airborne Division. Um, and that's where I, I had command of B Troop, 1st Squadron, 17th Cavalry. And we went into Grenada in Operation Urgent Fury in October of 83. And then um, after uh, about another year there with the CAV and uh, also commanded headquarters troop. Then I left there. I was the division operations officer of the, of the 82nd Airborne Division. And then I left in 86 where I got selected to, uh, to be the U.S. Army Exchange Officer to the British Army Air Corps. So I was the only American aviator for serving with the whole British Army Aviation, which was quite an honor. Uh, I had to do interviews, um, was kind of handpicked. In fact, my big, my last interview was with somebody, you might recognize the name, a guy named Norman Schwarzkopf. Yeah, I, I might know who he is. Yep. <laughs> so, I, so I go up and I'll tell you a real quick story. So I was told I had to go from Fort Bragg up to the Pentagon for my final interview. So I got up there and this Lieutenant Colonel met me and he said, um, Captain, here's what you, I was a captain, soon to be a major. 
He said, before you go in, here's two notebooks. Read through it, and if you have any questions, let me know. When you're done, let me know, and I'll, I'll let the general know that you're ready. And I thought, okay, whoever the general, I didn't even know. So I get these two large three-ring notebooks. I go through them. Didn't really tell me much. I um, told him, okay, sir, I'm ready to go, and I go in and I meet this guy. And I walk in, did the customary, you know, standard attention, salute, enter the, the room. And he looks up at me and says, Gordon, good to see you again. Have a seat. I'll be right with you. And I sat down, and my mind is reeling because I'm thinking, how does he know me, by my, especially by my first name? Because Gordon is my middle name. And unless you know me, people would call me by my first name. Mm-hmm. And that tells me that you don't know who I am. But he did. He said, Gordon, good to see you again. I'm like, where has he and I met? So as it turns out, back on Grenada, I had a visit by Admiral Metcalf with my command there on at St. George Airport and um, or Pearls Airport. And he bought two brigadiers nothing, one a Marine and one an Army one-star. Schwarzkopf was the one-star at the time. And he remembered coming to my command post during Urgent Fury, getting our briefing, visiting with the troops, talking to my sergeant major, um, all that kind of stuff. And, I, and so he mentioned that. So I thought, wow, what a small world that is. So we talked for a while, and he said, um, if you want the assignment, it's yours. I said, yes, sir, I'll take it. So I was assigned to the British Army Air Corps, went to the British Aviation School, was qualified to fly the uh, Lynx and the French Gazelle, our two main aircraft that was used for the Army Air Corps. And then um, was assigned to four regiment. Army Air Corps, and we moved from England to back to Germany, to that mold, in the British sector. So that started my second tour in Germany. You skipped over the part where you were in Grenada. You, you kind of glossed over that part. That, that was that was a big part of your career, no? Well, I mean, it was, um, because obviously Vietnam was long over, and um, you can, as, as General Powell um told me one day, uh, I mean, I'm, not, I'm sorry, not General Powell, but General Waller, Cal Waller told me one day, while it might have been a small engagement, you can be just as dead as if you'd have been in a year-long combat. And I, was, um, you know, there was a lot of bad publicity about Grenada. A lot of people were making fun of it. But we lost some good soldiers in that operation doing good things. And so it was kind of a, a turning point for me and an appreciation about how the media can either be your friend or your enemy. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I was decorated, but I just didn't wear them. I didn't wear the decorations. And um, one day I got called in to the general's office because I didn't wear them on my uniform for a parade that morning. And um, I had to go quickly to the PX and find all the ribbons and put them all back together again to report to General Waller in proper uniform. So he didn't chew me out, but he kind of talked to me in the way that I wish he had chewed me out because the way he was talking to me made me feel even worse. <laughs> but uh, I'm disappointed kinda, in you, son. <laughs> yeah, like the, yeah, exactly. Like the father figure. You now now I want to rip your head off for being a jackass. I'm just disappointed in you. I expected better. Yeah, I mean, and well, yeah. There, there was a lot of that. And, um, you know, I disappointed the guy that I looked up to. And that, that hurt me more 
that I disappointed this guy than anything. And, and it worked, mm-hmm. you know, it worked. So, um, so yeah, I mean, we were, we were lucky. We actually thought we were going to Beirut because if you remember the Marine Corps barracks had been bombed just a few days before that and we lost 241 Marines. So, um, I had, we had, my cab troop had just taken over a mission cycle at Fort Bragg for the 82nd. And I called my operations officer, John Bendix, that night, Sunday night, and said, look, let's do a telephonic, no notice recall. Uh, I'll get it started and I'll let you know what the message is. So I, a little, you know, a little while later, I called him and said, okay, John, we're on, uh, we're on alert. And the mission message is everybody for PT to tomorrow wear white t-shirts. Because back then we were wearing OD t-shirts. So then I could mm-hmm. see who got the message and who didn't. And he said, okay, boss, got it. And within, and you normally have two hours to recall everybody. And within about an hour, he called me back and said, hey, boss, we're, uh, we're uh, on mission alert and H hour is whatever. And I'll see you at the M plus two room at the division headquarters. And I said, what? That's not the message. And he says, it is now. I'll see you at the division headquarters and hung up. So I thought, well, okay. So off to the division headquarters and he and I are sitting there and the division intelligence officer stands up there, pulls a map down and says, gentlemen, the island of Grenada. And I'm sitting there thinking, Grenada, Grenada. I don't remember a Grenada in the, in the Mediterranean anywhere. And then as he started talking, things started uh, to come to my memory where we had been briefed on some activities down on the island about uh, the prime minister being assassinated with some of his cabinet. And um, and that's what we we're going to do is go down and squelch that. So it took four C-5A galaxies to load up my cab troop. Because back then, as a major in Army aviation, it was a very large command, more than what a lieutenant colonel commands today. So I had 475 paratroopers, 23 aircraft, a bunch of vehicles. And so to get us down there, four C-5s, we flew down from Fort Bragg, Pope Airfield to Barbados, unloaded, put the helicopters together and waited until the, the morning of the attack. And my, my mission was to secure Pearl's Airfield on the eastern east side. So we flew that morning from Barbados about 165 miles over open ocean and launched the attack right at sunrise so that the sun would be in the enemy's eyes as we approached the, the beachhead. Successful uh, operation, secured the beach. I had a Marine Corps platoon attached with me. They, along with my infantry platoon that, that was organic, I put them out forward, secured uh, a little bit further inland. We set up the, uh, the operations proceeded to conduct inland operations immediately after arrival. And then we stayed there for about two months, came home in December, right before Christmas. All right. So when you're flying this initial mission to go secure the airport, I mean, are you nervous? What are you thinking? What are you feeling? I mean, this is your first, you had all these experiences, I guess, in close calls in Germany, but are you thinking this one's different? Oh, this one was very different um, because we knew having talked with the task force 60 guys that had gone in the night before, uh, even before I left Fort Bragg to go to, to go to Barbados, I was briefed by one of the assistant operations guy from task force. What was task force 160 back then? 
and we're sitting there looking at our maps, <laughs> which were tourist maps that the Army gave us. They weren't even real um, military maps. They were actually tourist maps that we had to draw grid lines on. And they were telling me where some of the anti-aircraft positions were, ones that they had planned to knock out, ones that I was gonna have to knock out, which were basically the, the Soviet style 23-4, 23-millimeter four-gun anti-aircraft guns. And so we knew we, we, we knew we were not going to be welcomed when we got in there. Uh, so we had to plan had to plan how I was going to do that. And what I basically did was I split the CAV troop into three waves. I led the first wave in. My operations officer led the second wave in. And then my senior instructor pilot led the third wave. And we split it up so I had guns, scouts, and Blackhawks in each wave. And because the Cobra and the Scouts were single engine, I took everything out of the of the Blackhawks and put in um, one cargo net and a bunch of sling ropes and repel repel ropes with a knot tied in the bottom of them, so that if any aircraft went down, the Blackhawk was to immediately go to their rescue. If nothing else, uh, drop the ropes so that the pilots could stick their arm through the loop and they'd be hauled up out of the water. If for some reason that didn't happen, the rotor wash was pushing them away or something like that, then they would drop the cargo net and basically try to scoop them up like fish. Because we didn't have water wings or anything. Right. Uh, we were just in flight suits going across an ocean. So that was the plan to go in. Everybody had their sectors split it off with the gun scout teams as to who had what sectors based on what map uh, that we could do and intel. Bearing in mind, we, we had no eyes on the ground because we couldn't do any recon from 160 plus miles away. So we just kind of went in and I said, well, let's go in. Uh, we got the meteorological information. We knew about what sunrise was going to be. It's going to be it scheduled to be a perfectly almost clear blue day. So the sun would be beaming right across the water. We thought that would be to our advantage. So we came in low and fast with the sun behind us, kind of like the China Beach deal back in Vietnam days. So, so that's how we did it. And then we secured the airfield and then conducted operations and supported the 82nd and the brigades that were on the ground from then for the next two months. Okay, so <laughs> there's a lot there. Uh, when you guys finally do secure the ground... Uh, and and you're there. How does your mission change? Are you still flying like daily routine missions, or I mean, is there a is there gunfighting? I mean, what's the situation like on ground? Well, we're still d doing daily. What we would do is we would um, as a as the cavalry unit, we would seek out the enemy positions. So right. we would get we would get the uh, intelligence from the division where they thought there were pockets of bad guys, and we go look. And then depending upon the size of the uh, of the target, we could relay that back. And then the division would either uh, assault with uh, infantry units out of the brigades, bring in the uh, 82nd Battalion with their Cobras uh, to knock out if there were any heavy equipment. They didn't really have tanks, but they did have BTR-60s and a couple of other light track vehicles. So those guys could come in and, and knock those out for us. So that was really our, we were the eyes and ears of the division during the operation. So you get wounded here in Grenada. How does that happen? That happened on the night of 2nd of November. Um, we had set up, as I mentioned, we set up our fire base. 
In fact, if you took, if you looked at pictures of us, you would think we were in Vietnam. It looks just like a fire base we had in Vietnam days with the, the uh, foliage, the vegetation around us, the, the palm trees. Um, and so that night, the enemy, uh, primarily the uh, People's Republican Army, which were the Grenadians backed by Cuban advisors, decided that they wanted to come and, and, and try to knock us off the hill, I guess. And then uh, fortunately for us, they hit probably the strongest of the uh, defensive position. And what woke me up was the machine guns going off. And so Sergeant Major Paul Lacey and I, we hopped up from where we were laying down on the ground trying to get some sleep that night. And as they say, you run to the sound of the guns. So we were, we were headed that way and something knocked me over. And I thought I just tripped and fell. And I laid there for a second. Um, it was really surreal. Um, things kind of went slow motion. The sounds changed. I don't know if you're, if you've ever taken a high speed record and put it on low speed and hear what it sounds like when mm -hmm. you do that. So it's kind of like a 78 being played at a 33 and a third. By the way, you're dating yourself with that reference there, Gordon. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and so, so all of a sudden, that's what I could hear. And I could see red tracers and green tracers swapping out. And it was just kind of, you know, there was a little bit of chaos, as you would expect. But everything seemed to be under control. The guys were doing what they were trained to do. And honestly, I can't tell you if it lasted five minutes, 30 minutes, an hour. I honestly don't know. All I know, it ended, sound and everything came back. I was back on my feet, uh, looking around, directing traffic as best I could, making sure the perimeter stayed strong. My platoon leaders were doing great. So the sergeants had, were taking charge. They were getting the fire laid down like they should. The Marine guys that were still attached to us were just awesome. Uh, so in a little while, it was over. And uh, we're sitting back and... Um, Feeling okay, just glad, you know, the adrenaline is still sky high. And suddenly Paul looks over at me and goes, hey, boss, you're bleeding. And I went, what? And I looked down and my leg was, my trousers was red. And that's the last thing I remember for a while. I guess I just passed out from that. I guess I'd lost enough that it finally caught up with me. And I woke up later and my doc, because I had a, an organic medical platoon, run by a first lieutenant med uh, medical specialist. So Lieutenant Dean and his uh, medics, they patched me up and, and uh, you know, I was fit for duty. So that's how it happened. So you didn't get sent home? No, no, just I was still the commander and stayed right there commanding. What was the result of the wound? What did you find out after the fact? Um, I chipped off. Uh, I was very lucky that the, when I came home, the flight surgeon was giving me my physical in January and was looking at my leg. He told me that had the bullet come in an angle about about a half an inch to an inch more to the uh, to the right, that it, it probably would have blown at least most, if not all, the kneecap off and might have just done um, irreparable damage to my left leg. As is, it missed me by just a little bit. So I had one round went just above the kneecap, clipped the little skin, that the main round came through the left side of the kneecap, took off some bone and left. I've got a little divot in there. It's kind of healed after all these years, 30 something years later. It's hard to 
I mean, if you've looked at it, it, it's just like a big divot. It doesn't look like anything serious. And then there was another one down the bottom. So three rounds went by real quick, and and I was bleeding from the from the leg. I mean, that's just uh, that's that's crazy. Like, do you stop and think about, uh, you know, uh, literally a matter of inches, but how different your life would have been? Oh yeah, yeah. Especially because of my uh, my my work with the Purple Heart, so, or the military war of the Purple Heart. And especially our big chapter that we have here in the greater D.C. area, you know, we're, we're all the time visiting wounded veterans up at Walter Reed, the old Army Walter Reed, and now the Walter Reed National Medi- Medical Center at Bethesda. You know, I see these kids coming in and I'm thinking, you know, I was just a little bit older than you guys and, and gals that are coming through a lot more wounded, seriously wounded than I was. Many of them have come through lost limbs uh, in ICU when I go visit, and I and I just think, except for the grace of God, I, I would I could have easily been just like that. I I could I could have been that. Um, I think about it when I go run. I still run today. Uh, in fact, my daughter and I had her. She's in Africa right now. I was supposed to have been home in July. We were planning on doing a 5K run at Mount Vernon, the home of George Washington, this coming Saturday for her birthday. But uh, between her not being here and then COVID is making it more of a virtual run. But I mean, um, you know, what I, what would I be doing? Would I still be able to run with a prosthetic? And, you know, it, you just don't think about it. Um, at the time, you're just grateful that, that you're alive. And, and grateful because, like I said, so many of my friends were a lot worse off. One of my mm-hmm. best buddies in my chapter is a double amputee. And uh, as he says, he was doing everything right. He was doing everything exactly as he was taught, uh, and he still ended up stepping on a landmine and blowing both legs off. So, you know, it's just a cruel, um, cruelty of fate that, that hit, hit him, hit Gene. Whereas I, I, I guess I, I don't know, maybe I zagged instead of zigged or maybe I zigged instead of zagged. I don't know. I just, I just got lucky that day. When they, when they give you the purple heart, what are you thinking and feeling? So here's the story behind that. Um, Nothing ever happened because I was in the jungle and I never went through a hospital Um, because, you know, we just didn't have a hospital on the island. Unlike unlike back in Vietnam where you'd pack people up and go out to a trauma center or a hospital base or somewhere. We just, as I said, they patched me up and I just stayed there until we came home in December. So in January... um, Doc Taylor, he makes a note of it in my medical records, writes down all the stuff about being wounded, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't think about it. He just said, well, I just want to make sure we get your medical records up to date. And I said, yeah, that sounds good. So that was January 1984. So in, I want to say, March of 1996, I'm sitting at my office in the Pentagon now a lieutenant colonel, uh, working in desk ops, and an envelope comes through. Uh, people, I don't know if everybody knows what a shotgun envelope is, mm-hmm. but it's a big manila envelope with uh, <laughs> holes in it so you can see what's in there, and that's the, that's the, the term shotgun because it looks like it got shot by a shotgun. So this big envelope comes through, and it's got stuff in it, and it's laying on my desk. So I open it up, 
and out follows um, a couple of citations and a couple of metal sets. And I thought, oh, I wonder what this is. One of my guys are getting awards or something. This is kind of cool. Sergeant Major, Steve too, my, um, my Sergeant Major comes over and says, hey, boss, what's this? I said, I don't know. It looks like somebody's getting an award. This is great. And I open it up, and it's my Purple Heart and my Air Medal from Grenada. <laughs> Just like that. Just like that. Just shows up on my desk. And I thought, well, this is odd. And, of course, he looks at it and goes, oh, this is awesome. And he grabs them, runs out of the office. And uh, Freddie McFerrin was the uh, two-star in charge of Army training at the time in our, de our department. And Freddie McFerrin, at the time of Grenada, had been the 319th Field Artillery Battalion commander. And so when I was calling fire missions from my, my aircraft to the artillery, I was talking to him or his, his fire chief during, during Grenada. So we had that in common. So Steve goes in and gives General McFerrin the mail set and says, look what we just got. We need to have a ceremony. So General McFerrin said, yeah, you're right. And next thing we know, I'm standing there and he's pinning medals on me instead of just allowing me to take them home and put them in the closet. So Now, was, so it, was this one of the medals that you didn't have on that you were corrected on later on? Yep, that was, uh, that was a couple of them, yeah. But that's still 13 years later. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what was your reaction 13 years? I mean, did you, did you think anything of it? Were you like, you know, I'm glad he took that, uh, you know, those notes back in, in Grenada at the time? Or, you know, not glad, but you know what I'm saying? Like, if he doesn't take those notes, maybe this never happens. Well, yeah. I mean, again, as I said, I'm that poster child that just happened to have a, a flight doc that, that wanted to do the, the paperwork and, and did that. Otherwise, it would have never happened. I would have never really thought about it. Um, did you find out how it all came to pass as far as the paperwork leading to the actual citation and award? There had, the only thing I heard was somebody had done some kind of review of the, of operation urgent fury and they were trying to get notes together and they were reaching out to units and it was kind of, well, somebody said this and somebody said that. And so they asked, uh, participants, what happened and some of us in the commands on the command roles, I submitted a, a note and said, yeah, this happened. We had these, these con these, um, operations, uh, Woodlawn Estates, uh, Pearl's airfield, the initial attack. So here were the basic ones that we participated in during operation urgent fury. And these were the guys that were wounded. We didn't, you know, we didn't have anybody that was killed. Everybody came home, which was great. Um, I said, this is, this is what we remember. And I guess somebody then started doing a records check and one thing led to another. And there you go. Was your bronze star also from Grenada? Yes. Yeah. I got the bronze star with valor from there too. Now, was that for a specific mission or just for the entire, you know, tour of the two months you were there? Um, I was told that I got it. Um, yeah, that was, that was the other thing that showed up as well. Um, oh, so they both showed up at the same time. Yeah. So that was the one where uh, I believe that was put in for that initial attack by leading the calf troop in that morning. Wow. I mean, that's a, it's, it's just crazy that, uh, you know, it took them 13 years to catch up and finally do it because now it's such an environment where 
we almost process awards to a fault so quickly. Uh, you know, I, I've had this conversation with, with a lot of people. I, I can remember the difference between my first tour in Iraq and my second. Um, and, and just as an example, you know, and I remember reading this in Stars and Stripes at one point, the amount of bronze stars that they gave out, you know, in the OIF 1, 2, and 3 versus 4, 5, and 6, and the number had nearly doubled. And it was one of those things where you look at it and you say, well, you know, basic laws of supply and demand, you know, hold here. If you've ever taken an economics class, right? If everybody has one, it has no value, right? right. I mean, if you're handing out awards like they're candy, it's no big deal. And I'm not trying to denigrate anybody's individual achievement. I'm just, I'm, I'm somebody who errs on the side of, let's really make sure that we're doing the things that we're supposed to be doing to justify the awards that we're giving. So the people who get them all have a, and, and that's where I think the issue is, is that it, it's not that somebody doesn't deserve an award. It's just what level of award do they deserve? Right. I mean, that, yeah. that's really what yeah. you have to look at the, the fine tuning for and hold to a certain standard. Um, and again, I, I'm not trying to hold anybody from, from getting an award. I think awards are a great thing as a, you know, as a former commander, it's something that, you know, you always take pride in and want to recognize people for their efforts. But Again, in the same respect, you just have to make sure that what you're doing um, is consistent with what, you know, all the people who get the awards. It's just uh, the other example I use. It's like the Hall of Fame in sports. If you let everybody in, it's not special anymore. Right. Exactly. And that and that's why that that day back at the division, they had presented me the Bronze Star uh, for meritorious service. And then uh, a couple of other things I don't remember. But everybody else got the same thing. I mean, everybody. And I thought, well, that's just like, um, I don't know, this is like participation trophy. I thought, this is ridiculous. Right. And I remembered, I remembered one of the, the units in Vietnam that um, if you didn't have a bronze star, an Army Commendation Medal with Valor and a couple other things, during your tour, when you out-processed, then they quote unquote fixed it, and so you got different. You got those awards. Well, you're you're going to get it whether you had one day in actual combat in the jungles or if you had a 365 days. You were going to get get awards coming out, and I and that just always stuck with me. So I thought, no. And then when they were passing these things out, and that again was was part of the cartoonish part of the. Um, of the operation. I mean, even Doonesbury, I've, I, I have them in my scrapbook, some of the Doonesbury comic strips about everybody walking around hanging down. They can't stand up because they've been given so many medals from Operation Urgent Fury. And I thought, you know, I'm just not going to be that. I'm not going to be labeled, oh, so you got yours from Urgent Fury. Yeah, right. Okay. Mm, sure. I was like, nope, not happening. And then, uh, and then, like I said, that's when General Walter came through and said all the officers in the headquarters will be in dress green uniforms with all awards and decorations for muster. And I thought, uh, okay. So I just show up. And I basically got my aviation badge, my jump wings, my ranger tab, uh, name tag. I think that's what I wore. And my smart-ass remark was he came through and he says, aren't you missing something? And I looked at him and said, sir, everybody got, all you had to do is just stand in the right candy line and they were going to give you a medal. Well, it was kind of like we used to say in ranger school, that was plus 25 for initiative, but minus 50 for lack of judgment. <laughs> so, 
So Colonel, then Lieutenant Colonel Crocker, who later retired Lieutenant General Crocker, looked at uh, then Brigadier General Waller, who later retired Lieutenant General, Lieutenant General. In fact, Waller was Schwarzkopf's deputy during Desert Storm, the black general, the African-American general mm -hmm. during Desert Storm. That was, that's the guy. Oh, wow. So, so Uncle Cal looked at me like, you know, I've been with you for a long time. The captain, this one, <laughs> this one didn't work. And I was like, yeah, I kind of bit that one. So he, he looked at Colonel Crocker and he said, uh, I'll see you and the captain in my office at 2.30 this afternoon. Hmm. And I thought I thought Crocker was going to just one bite, my whole head was going to be gone. <laughs> uh, and like I said, I had to go down to the uh, military clothing sales store and walk in and said, okay, I think I need this ribbon and that ribbon and this one and that one and put it all together and show up. And then um, he dismissed Colonel Crocker. And then, like I said, he sat me down and just gave me that talk to, instead of chewing me out, that just made me feel like crap. So, but he was right. It was that the general was absolutely right. As he said, on any given day, any of us could have been just as dead on Grenada as Vietnam or any other combat tour in the history of our military. So we should be proud of where we serve. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that I think is uh, something that rings true um, throughout all, you know, uh, not only, you know, engagements and combats and whatnot, but all levels of the service. I mean, everybody should sort of have that that sort of mentality um, as as they go throughout their career. I think that's that's super important. All right. So you mentioned as well uh, that you ended up flying for the British Army. Now, this is a whole different sort of, uh, you know, mission that we, we haven't really had a chance to discuss with anybody. I mean, what what's the biggest difference between flying for the United States Army and the British Army? Uh, when I first got there, um, the Brits really didn't, they don't, at the time, they they didn't have the, the same flying standards as we did um, when it comes to safety. Um, they didn't have Nomex flight suits. So you had an uncrashworthy fuel system in an aircraft with people just wearing a regular day-to-day -day uniform. And if you crash and it burned, well, it just wasn't your day. I mean, that's just kind of one of the examples. Um, while they didn't know it all the time, I don't mean to paint a picture, by no means, but there were times when I first got there that they would have a luncheon. Some VIP would come through, and all the officers would meet at the officers' mess, and they'd have a lunch, which meant they would all start with gin and tonics, and then they would have their meal, sometimes a wine with the meal. They'd have a glass of port after the meal. And then within an hour or so, some of the flight guys, they would go get an aircraft and go fly missions. And I thought, all right, this is just not going to work. So tried to, without saying, okay, here's why I think we need to change some things with the regimental commander. Um, I was trying to instill some safety and all this kind of stuff. And how that happened, again, strange and mysterious ways. Um, right after I got there, I got promoted and now I was mismatched by the assignments. And uh, the Brits didn't care. But uh, I'm thinking, well, as an American, I'm now a major. And I'm in a captain's assignment. This is really not good. So what can I do about it? So I went to the regimental commander, David Cranston. And I asked Colonel Cranston, I said, look, here's what I've got in mind. You don't have an operations officer like we do in the, in the American Army at the regimental level. I said, I would do that job. And here's what I can do, all your tactics, all your SOPs, 
uh, head your flight training with your instructor pilots. I said, I can do all that for you. And you just make the position a major's position and rate me as that. And I think I could pull this off and stay here. And he thought, well, that's a great idea. So we got approval to do that. Uh, General Schwarzkopf, who was my American boss, he didn't care. And Sir Martin Farndale, who was the British four-star, he didn't care. So I became the first British, um, what they call SO2 operations officer for an Army Air Corps regiment in their history. And so I started working that, laid out the program, got it all going, did that for about nine months. And um, things were working very well. This, the uh, squadron that I was flying with to keep my, my flying current, 659 squadron, their squadron commander was leaving. And the British squadron commander that had been selected to come in was seriously injured in a motorcycle accident, almost killed him. So unbeknownst to me, Colonel Cranston calls Sir Martin Farndale and uh, General Hobbs, who was the, the four infantry division commander, Major General Hobbs, and said, if it was okay with him, he didn't want a British officer coming in. He wanted me to take over the squadron. And they approved it against General Schwarzkopf approved it. So um, a surprise to me is on a Friday evening, I get called in to see the regimental commander. And I'm told that uh, come Monday morning, I would be the officer commanding 659 squadron. And so I became the first and to date only American to command an attack uh, helicopter squadron in the British Army Air Corps. Now, saying that, I don't know if that means that's really an honor or if it means I screwed it up so bad, the Brits didn't want to take a chance <laughs> on having another American to do it. I, I don't know. I'll let the, I'll let history decide, but sure. Um, but so that's, that's how I, I became the first commander of, uh, of a British army air corps and our, our squadron and my sister squadron, six, five, four squadron commanded at the time by Tony Hayhurst, now Sir Tony Hayhurst, um, we were the two frontline attack helicopter squadrons on the East German border in the British sector. And so we, we had aircraft up every day. I changed how we operated. We had a 19% OR rate when I took over. When I left command, we had a 92% OR rate. Uh, we were flying uh, about 700 hours a month instead of 70 hours a month. And there was a, a, a Lynx scout team on the border from sunrise to sunset every day. So, I mean, we turned it around and, um, I mean, the guys, if you were not flying a mission or scheduled to fly a mission, you were working with the Remy's doing aircraft run-ups or whatever. It was a total team effort. How does that experience end? When does your time in the UK come to an end? How did it end? Yeah. Oh, uh, tears. <laughs> I mean, everybody says, so out of your million, you know, a lot of, lot of tours and stuff, which was the best one. And I tell everybody, well, I hate to say it, it wasn't the Americans that had the best tour, except for when I was in the 82nd Airborne Division. I said, uh, my British tour was absolutely the best. Um, uh, we had such a team with Colonel Cranston, who retired as Major General, uh, Sir David Cranston, later on in life. Uh, Tony Hayhurst, um, Rick Jones. I mean, we, we just had a great great team of officers and non-commissioned officers and warrant officers that it was just fun. I mean, everybody chipped in and Colonel Cranston set the priorities 
he said the demeanor of the outfit and uh, I mean, it was, just, it was just a great command, great command climate over there. And we had our, we had our challenges. I mean, the IRA was still active at the time. Uh, I lost uh, some of my British soldiers. I lost my one of my sergeant majors to the IRA who was assassinated. Uh, so just like the other tours with the Americans, where we were watching the bad guys like the Batter Meinhof and Red Brigade and all those kind of folks. We were dealing with the IRA and the IRA, they didn't care if I was American or not. So checking for bombs underneath the cars. Uh, our barracks was actually bombed our uh, airfield by the IRA about three weeks before I left. Um, that was a pretty rough night. I got, I got blown up a bit, um, probably qualified for another Purple Heart. I just never got around to doing the paperwork. But, um, but yeah, so I mean, it was, it was pretty hectic, but everybody held together and, and we did great things. So when you leave the UK, does that mean you're ending your career? Is that how you know it's over for you? Nope. Actually, I got picked up to go to 3rd Armored Division there in Germany. So I just stayed in Germany after leaving uh, the British in May of 88. Went down and became the Regimental 3, the aviation unit there in 3rd Armored Division. Um, and then I took over command of Task Force Viper, which became 1st of the um, 227th Aviation battalion. So I got my American battalion command then. Um, had a great time there. Uh, the commanding general was a guy named George Jowan. So I flew him a lot. He ended up being uh, four-star um, SACUR, Supreme Allied Commander. So flew General Jowan uh, all over Europe with our, with our aviation guys. And it was, uh, it was a good tour there. I left in, um, in 1990. Left Germany. That was the last time I'd been to Germany. And what's next for you when you get back from the States? Well, that was the interesting thing. Um, the Army decided that uh, I was going to go to ROTC command. And I always thought that if I went to ROTC, my career was over. And I'm thinking, how could this happen? I mean, I've, I've had like top 5% of the officer corps tours. And all of a sudden you're telling me I'm gonna be an ROTC guy. And um, I was a major thinking, this is nuts. Not to mention, we didn't have professors of military science as a major. What I found out was one of the ROTC generals, a guy named Steve Siegfried, was tired of having Lieutenant Colonels and Colonels in ROTC who was basically retired on active duty and not doing anything. So he's, he made a proposal and the Army and Cadet Command said, well, what we'll do is we'll just get majors who have met all the gates for promotion. They just have to wait on their time in service and we'll make them professors of military science and department commanders. So I got to be the first ROTC PMS as a major in the Army and went to uh, the University of Nebraska and that took some dealings because Nebraska didn't want me because I was a major and the Army was going to send me there. So I had to wait for them to, to finally figure it out. But I ended up going, kicking and screaming all the way out there. And then after two years of that tour, I was kicking and screaming leaving because it was such a great time teaching America's future officer leadership. Great kids, watching them coming in the door as freshmen and going out as second lieutenants and how they matured, knowing that they were going to do great leading our soldiers and working with the soldiers and their families. 
very, very, very rewarding. So I left that and then I went up to join General Siegfried as his operations officer up at uh, Fort Lewis. And then John Daly came in as a one-star, took over. John Daly had been Task Force 60 commander way back when during my brag days. And I was going to fly with him in Task Force 160 and opted out not to after my daughter was born. So now Brigadier General Daly tells me I'm gonna be his operations officer and, and I can't fight it this time, I'm, I'm moving. So I said, okay. So I became the old man's ops guy and ran the ROTC advance camps out of Fort Lewis and uh, had oversight with the ROTC senior and junior from the Mississippi River West to include Alaska, Hawaii and Guam. So did that for a couple of years. And now I'm thinking the army's gonna kick me out, I'm done. And I had actually applied at the university to start my doctoral program and thinking I would just retire the next summer and do some instructing, get a salary, get my doctorate and then be full, full time there at the university. And my brigade commander called me at 7.30 on a Friday morning to tell me congratulations, I just made the promotion. And so I was the only, no, I take that back. Me and one other guy were the only two to get promoted in Connect Command that year. And I thought, well, this is great. Now what do I do? Do I retire or do I keep the rank and, and move? So I, I did. And uh, I kept on going and ended up years later in the Pentagon as oh, wow. the division chief for Army training. So, so that's how I did it. So I ended up my career uh, retiring in January of 98. Um, like I said, I came in in September of 70 and retired in January of 98. Uh, I was the chief of army training. I was in the brigadier general's position there in, in the Pentagon responsible for army training worldwide. And, um, the only reason I, I retired was they were going to move me to California. And I just said, no, I'm done. I want to be here. My, my daughter was now in high school. I want to be in high school with her. And so I said, no, I said, um, find me a job here in the capital region. I'll stay on active duty. Otherwise I'm out. And so, uh, so I ended up retiring and I came right back in on uh, Monday morning as government, uh, as a consultant there with the chief of staff, basically in my old desk, just wearing a coat and tie and then did that. But I retired out, um, with a lot of, a lot of honors decorations that a lot of people get um, all very special, like they are to all of us for a job well done. But my memories of all of that pale when it comes to seeing what's hanging on the wall compared to the friends, the comrades, the lifetime memories. In fact, just yesterday, I got a Facebook friend request from one of my captains from my command in Germany in 19... Uh, 88. Wow. And he said, Hey boss, I found you on Facebook. It's Jeff. I wanted to connect. So I still, I still get those to this day where people are finding me and reconnecting. That means more than any metal hanging on the wall. Now you are the president and CEO of veterans moving forward. I mean, obviously you have other things going on, but this nonprofit uh, is certainly a cause that's near and dear to you. So tell me about it. Oh yeah, this is this is where I really wanted us to get to. Um, enough about me, but um, Veterans Moving Forward was started in 2009 by 
a Navy commander, Karen Jeffries, retired, and Bob Larson, who didn't have any military experience himself, but his family, he had military connections. They were old friends, and they wanted to do something in uh, 2008, 2007, 8 time frame to help veterans coming back from the wars overseas. And they got the idea about service dogs. Um, they reached out to a mutual friend and asked um, Jay Garner, General Garner, if he could help them with this idea of putting together a nonprofit. And Jay said, no, couldn't do it right now. And he says, but I know somebody who's just leaving the Obama administration, and he's probably not doing anything right now. So why don't you give Gordon a call and see if he can help? And that's how I met them. We talked. I came on board as really the first volunteer to help organize the uh, the nonprofit, get it started. Um, served as the board secretary for about four and a half years, fundraising chair for a while, president for a while, until I left in 2016 when I got elected as the commander of our Purple Heart chapter here in D.C. And I really wanted to focus on building it back. So um, that's how it got started. Our mission is to provide service and emotional support dogs to veterans dealing with mental or physical challenges anywhere that they, that they are located. We're not just, even though we're here in Virginia, we don't just place dogs in Virginia. We place dogs all over where there's a need. And um, we've been, we kind of went down a little bit um, since I left in 2016. And how I got back was in Ooh, September of last year, 2019, some of the board members reached out to me asking if I would come back full-time, not as a volunteer, but basically full-time paid as the president and CEO and turn BMF back around. And so I accepted. So I came back officially 1st of October of last year. I've got a great team. Uh, Lori Sidner, who is my COO, and Katie Paulson, who is my direct director of programs and head trainer, they are magnificent. I've got about 45, 50 volunteers working in a variety of different ways from office management to donor management system, um, fundraising, development, uh, social media, um, events coordinator, publications, things like that. So I've got a great team that are they're really working hard. We have turned this thing back around. Uh, we're actually going to place two dogs right now, two, maybe three by the end of the year, but we definitely are going to place two dogs with veterans this year. First time that's happened in two years. Um, we've got two new puppies that you can see on our website. Um, we just got Ashley in and all of our veterans, all of our dogs are named after veterans, most of whom have given the ultimate sacrifice. Mm -hmm. So our puppy, Ashley, She's named after Army First Lieutenant Ashley White, who was killed in Afghanistan in 2011. And then our newest puppy, three-month-old Hazel. Hazel is named after Brigadier General Hazel Johnson Brown. And General Brown was the first female African-American officer to make general. Oh, wow. So, uh, so that's, that's kind of how it does. The dog that I named back, gosh, 2013 or so, uh, Buckles. Buckles is named after Corporal Frank Buckles, the last World War I combat veteran that passed away back about 2004. So, I mean, those that's the kind of legacy uh, that we have. You can see our dogs. You can see who they're named after on our website, which, by the way, is www.vetsfwd.org. 
vetsforward.org. Or you can just Google Veterans Forward, Veterans Moving Forward, and you can find us on our new revamped website. That's incredible stuff. I mean, it sounds like, you know, it's an organization that really uh, is doing two things. One, it's it's providing, uh, you know, much-needed companionship to uh, veterans who, who may be searching for it. But also, you know, it, it's bringing that sense, I think, of normalcy to sort of the stigma of mental health, right? Like it, it, dogs are one of those things that, that seems to take away from it because, again, you're, you're creating a companionship there, so it's not, not as difficult. But I think those are two really important things that veterans struggle with, you know, obviously is, is looking at mental health from a, a, a point of view where it's not stigmatized and they're feeling comfortable with it, but also, you know, filling the void and the emptiness, you know, it, you talk about all the guys that you miss. Well, you know, a dog doesn't necessarily make you miss them less, but at least there's companionship there for you to draw on and not get stuck in those moments of, of emptiness, so to speak. Oh yeah. You're absolutely right, Mark. And when you go to our website, you'll actually see, on the first page, stories of some of our most recent veterans that have acquired dogs and what these dogs have done to get these, get these veterans, their lives turned around where they are now back in society. They're going back to school. They're engaged in their communities. Their family life is better. Uh, they're able to get, to get out and function and doing things that, that many people just take for granted that for some of our veterans is just a struggle, even just to get out of bed. Um, so it's really heartwarming to see what we can do. It, but the, the bottom line is we're nowhere near the, the, the being able to meet the need. We're, we're not even the tip of the iceberg. So uh, as I tell people, if you really want to help us, donate tax deductible. We are a 501c3. Make your donation today. We'd love to have you as a monthly provider monthly donor. So consider doing that. Every little bit helps. And um, again, you can take it off on your taxes. But the bottom line is, the, it's real simple. The more money that we can have donated means the more dogs that we can train, which means the more dogs that we can place with veterans to help them move their lives forward. It's really that simple. And we just need everybody's support, all the businesses that listen in on your great podcast, all the individuals that can help spread the word, Go to our website, make that donation, become a monthly sustainer, and help us with our mission to move veterans' lives forwards with our great service and emotional support dogs. I, we need your help. Great words from somebody who obviously is in tune with uh, the veteran community and, and what they need. And certainly, you know, your experiences in your career, Gordon, have led you to this. You know, I mean, you, I don't think you get this this empathy for what they're going through without, you know, having done some of this stuff yourself. So I, I certainly appreciate and thank you for, for all you're doing with, with Vets moving forward. And I think that you seem very sort of reserved about your own personal story, but I'm certainly glad you were able to tell it to us. Well, thank you very much, very much, Mark. I, I appreciate the time. Um, I appreciate you allowing me to, to kind of tell some old war stories. And like I said, I had some as I tell people, um, especially in the military, if you don't like the way I turned out, blame it on the NCOs because they told me when I was a young SEG lieutenant, they were going to make me an officer. <laughs> and I said, okay, I'm yours. You do it. So I always tell people, if you don't like it, blame the NCOs. It's their fault. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gordon, again, I certainly thank you for your time and, and all your work and, and certainly your passion for uh, your career, but what you're doing post-career being equally as important. And certainly thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground. Well, thanks a lot. Again, go to the website, 
www.detsfwd.org. And there's ways to help. And if you're in our local area here in Northern Virginia, in the Dulles Airport, in Loudoun County, or any of the surrounding counties, we'd love to have you as a volunteer. Again, you can do that right off our website, fill out the volunteer form, and be part of our VMF family. Love to have you. Gordon Sumner, thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thank you very much, Mark. Have a great day. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.